Is this thing on? <clears throat> this is Artscape, an investigation into the artistic and cultural landscape of our region, with your hosts, Katie and Harold. For the next hour, we are going to take a journey through sound and storytelling. This podcast is brought to you by CFUV 101.9 FM, located on the unceded territories of the Lekwungen and Wasanic peoples, created with the generous support from the BC Arts Council. Join us as we uncover the people, happenings, and organizations that make up the artscape in which we live. This is a story about the land, the land in which I live, work, and create on. Close your eyes for a moment. Picture yourself. Where are you? Well, for me, I'm located in a place known as Canada, British Columbia, Victoria. But it hasn't always been called that. So how did it happen? And at what cost? This episode explores the history of this place before it became what we know it to be today and the measures that were imposed on the Songhees people. So you can open your eyes now, and please be aware that this episode contains content that may be sensitive to some listeners, specifically content dealing with residential schools and child abuse. So please take care of yourselves and seek support if you need it. This is a collaboration that began in late December when I met eight exceptional students in Brad Cunningham's Humanities Flex class. So my name is Marcos. I'm Kaylee. My name's Rosemary. I'm Olivia. I'm Saul. I'm Alex. I'm Emily. I'm Lily. And through the direction of Chris O'Connor, from the Royal BC Museum, we partnered with the Songhees Nation to foster a relationship with Seklima, also known as Elder Joan Morris and Mark Salter. This project proceeded with the students and myself visiting Discovery Island in January, February, and March of 2016, fostering a relationship that will continue to flourish between Reynolds Secondary School and the Songhees Nation well into the future. These islands and Songhees elder Seklima is what this story centers around. I'm Mark Salter. I'm an employee with the Songhees Nation um, in various capacities since the Wellness Center has been opened. So let's see, we're going to Chatham and Discovery. Does anyone know where those names came from? we talked about it last time. It goes back to our early, early, early explorers, the guy that named Vancouver Island. Oh, pardon me, that was a clue. George, J, uh, James Cook? No, so we got, we George, got George Vancouver. Yeah, this is George Vancouver. But we've got, the islands are named after what? Anyone remember, you were in the museum, it's right there in the museum, on the ships. It was, was it James Cook? I can't hear it, no. Say again? The boat was called the Discovery? The boat was called the Discovery, correct. Oh, it was. The other one was called the Chatham. So that's where these islands are named after. They were named by the British Admiralty. The Songhees name, Lekwungen name is? Teshes. which translates to mean? One island. The one island. Because at low tide, and you have to remember, three or four hundred years ago, maybe five hundred years ago, the sea was actually much lower than it is today, according to the archaeologist I was talking to. So the one island was much more practical in those days because you could walk at low tide between them all in those days. Even Joni Morris couldn't, you know, you know how small she is. But she only could do one spot, she said. All right, what other geography do we have? How many islands are there on the Songhees Islands? Four. Four? Anyone in, remember they had the names? Local um, local family name, Van Trite, known for their uh, 
skills and in strong tide because it's actually quite strong tide there. Chatham East, Chatham West? And then the Chathams are actually divided into two. There's East and West, they're big and small. And one has the cemetery on it. And we're gonna be working nearby that cemetery today. So we'll do a little, uh, we'll do a small moment of thought before we go ashore. Keep the ancestors happy. And then Discovery, of course. And of course, Discovery's got, um, lighthouse on it. For the work we've done so far on Discovery Island, which was what we know as the old Ned Williams family farm, uh, heritage apple trees and orchard. So we've, thanks to your very good help, we got one of the biggest, more open trees cleaned up, plus we pulled the grass away. Then we started working on a similar tree nearby, which was surrounded by blackberries, which we were good enough to cut the bottoms off. Um, we'll pull those out next time, and that'll be the process for the rest of the work out there. It's a case of just working our way into a tree, um, and then maybe that's what we'll do next trip is got a pear orchard that's got to be, someone's got to get to it, so we have to cut a lot of brush out of the way before we can get to the tree, and then pull the ivies off the tree. I asked the group of students how they felt meeting Elder Morris to pitch their idea about sharing her story. I think we were all super scared because it's something that none of us know about. Like it's definitely something that we're super scared about that we don't actually get faced with in our everyday life. We don't get faced with like, oh, is this proper thing to say? Is this respectful? But to actually present someone's life and present someone's story and present like a whole a whole culture when none of us belong to that. It's super scary. It's super, you have to think of like everything that you're doing and think about every step that you're taking. It's like, is this right? Will this help someone? Will this help? And it's so weird to say, but it, like you have to think, like, will this help better Canada? Like, will this help like make a better place for us to live? Will this help First Nations people? Is this helpful? So we're all super terrified to think, like, what if, what if this isn't what she wants? What if this is? What if she just thinks this is downright disrespectful? It's super scary, actually. It was a super terrifying moment for me because this is the moment of, will this project go any further? Will this actually be something that the way that she wants her story to be told? This is a topic that is difficult, really difficult for a lot of First Nations people to talk about. Residential schools, Indian hospitals, even living in Canada and their life in Canada, even though this is their place, the way that settlers have treated them and the way that their culture and their way of living has, has been taken for granted, and it just hasn't been respected at all. I guess for a lot of people it is a super difficult thing to talk about, because it is but it's something that we have to, something that we have to talk about, something that we have to acknowledge. It hasn't been talked about, it's been ignored for so long. I just think it's a really important part of our history that we need to change. Being a settler, it feels really weird to me because since I was born and raised here, when I was young, I was never educated on like the fact that there were people here before us, which because our culture completely dominated them. And like you look around and you barely see any of their culture. It is like their culture has been erased, and it's just really it's upsetting because it's like we shouldn't have the right to have done that, but we did in history textbooks and everything, like when you're in socials, you're sort of reading about how these people were looked up to for being settlers and for dominating all this land, but you never really hear about all of the losses that the people that were there before them experienced, and you never hear about what they had to go through and what they did go through when that happened. In school, like when you, you read a textbook, you see like honestly, people get tired of it because of the way it's presented. It's like you're reading the same story over again, and you don't really get the whole perspective of like this is real. This 
happened and it's just not right like the explorers like they came here they they claimed the land they thought they discovered something but it was like no they're just kind of stealing it you can't cross people like that like that just doesn't seem right and, and it's like something makes me feel like almost guilty but I didn't do it none of us did it but it's in our past even if we weren't there My name is Nancy Turner. I'm a botanist and ethnobotanist. Um, I work in the School of Environmental Studies at the University of Victoria. I've always loved plants and been interested in ways that they've been used by people as edible plants, as materials uh, for dyes and that kind of thing. I have to give credit to John Lutz, who's a history professor here at UVic. He wrote a paper and delivered it called The Perfect Eden, and it was really opened my eyes to the colonial practices here in, in Victoria. And of course, knowing about the use of camas, the use of fire to maintain prairies, and the management systems that people had in place here to promote the food that they used, um, it really resonated with me uh, to, to read John's paper and to see how the through the eyes of even Captain Vancouver and James Douglas when they came around this area and they saw these uh, parklands really, um, Gary Oak stands, beautiful magnificent trees with these broad uh, prairie expanses of camas and, and other flowering plants and grasses. And uh, didn't recognize them at all to be uh, the hand of humans that created them, but rather expressing surprise that they were so beautiful, so much like the oak forests of England, I think, uh, but calling them an uncultivated waste. Um, because for them, um, looking through their eyes, they saw the potential of this land, uh, not for what it was, not for how it supported people the way it was, but they saw the potential for cultivation. And that you can see from uh, John Locke's statement about that God gave the land to man, but his labor is the title to it. And so you have to show that you put a lot of work and labor into your land before you can claim it as being your private property. And it's funny because there was a lot of labor that went into that land by the First Nations, but it wasn't recognized because the outcome of it was so different. It wasn't that style of the Mr. McGregor's garden style of planting crops in rows and fencing them and you know rectangular plots and all of the things that we think of with as uh, being gardening today. Um, people didn't do that kind of cultivation and so I sometimes think it was conveniently overlooked the uh, the practices that First Nations have had to to produce their food and their materials, um, that those were conveniently overlooked, and people were looked as looked on as. I think this is a quote from Douglas: "Wild denizens of the forest." And so, uh, for the Europeans arriving and seeing this, what to them was obviously um, inferior use, inferior ways of using the land and the people therefore uh, uh, not as civilized as themselves, they could justify taking the land away from them and turning it to what they saw was the legitimate God-given use of the land. We'll look all the way down the beach curves nice and gently to the out that way. So Joan's family um, has an interesting relationship to this location as well as um, I mentioned to you before 
Cheryl Bryce, who's our uh, Songhees Nation member, who's the um, ethnobotanist, works, works in the lands department. Now her family, Cheryl's family, had the responsibility of caring for the camas fields in what we now know as Uplands Park. So Cheryl's been in there and done some restorative work in the last 10 years. Joan would tell us that when her and her family would come, they would come into the bay and you can just see along the beach there, you can see just in the, green, in the grass, the trees there, there's a straight line. It's a wee trail that comes up from the beach. And they would come out of their canoe, walk into there, up onto the cattle point section and then go up into the area which now we know as Uplands Park and harvest camas there. And of course the reason this village is here, it's because it's nice. <laughs> I mean, you can see everything you need to see for your traditional hunting and fishing right here. There's San Juan Island where the fish are caught in the summertime. There's the Discovery where you go and stay over the, do your summer fish camp because you go over there, process and dry the fish. Lots of fair breezes and sunny shores over there. But then when someone's here in the middle of August, their family's just, you know, five miles away and they can probably see them, you know. If there was a big fire here, they could probably see a big fire here. So that's, that's how close this area is to where people lived and, and were able to survive. This place has everything you need. It's got a very uh, pleasant climate here. When a traditional westerly blows all summer long, this area is in the lee of the breeze, and so it's only warm air coming from across the land. So now you're sitting here, like every other person does on Willow Beach, and suntan, because it's got all the sunshine. In the wintertime, it's also bright. You can still see the sun come up, and the sun's setting just over here now. So you can see it all right from the same place. It's a very important part of winter because it's dark all the time. So you want to be positioned somewhere where you can see the sun all day. And what better place than to see your summer fishing grounds. You can see the visitors coming from quite a ways away and the, and the not so nice people coming to visit. The uh, raiders and slavers and who were coming to steal children. Basically that's what it was. Women and children were taken when the men were out fishing and, and, and hunting and so forth. So having fortified uh, villages was important and there are several fortified village sites along this roadway as part of the Songhees uh, island cultural tour, we take people out and show them that. The, like Mark's saying, this village is it's an interconnected whole. You can't just separate any part of the landscape or the seascape from any other thing. And so uh, I would encourage you all to come here at a low tide, check the tide tables and come back and see these rocks right out here. Those rocks right out there, if you go there at low tide, there's a series of stone bowls that the Lekwungen people had actually pecked into the rocks. So they're about this deep and about this big, and there's about 12 of them there. And so we don't know what they're for, but most of the Lekwungen and other Coast Salish experts I've talked to, their sense is that they were used for some sort of spiritual purpose, um, divination or a first salmon ceremony or something like that. So, unfortunately, we can't get to them now without hip waders, but they're really phenomenal, and they just we just found those a couple of years ago. So, uh, even though we're in the middle of one of the most suburban and urbanized parts of Victoria, and certainly Oak Bay, um, all around us, this Lekwungen and Coast Salish history exists underneath the houses, around the houses, and then behind the village here, this village, what we what we see now archaeologically, so what you know what is written on the sign there. That's just the tail end of what was a much longer Lekwungen history here. Sea levels have been rising very slowly in the order of about 0.2 millimeters a year. And that's just natural sea level rise. Of course, that'll be amplified now um, as we deal with global warming. But you multiply 0.2 millimeters by 8,000 years, you know, and that's what we're, when we're talking about archeology, span we're talking like, we're talking thousands of years. Sea level has risen enough that the village site was probably actually farther out in the ocean. Now, nobody's done this here, but I've done this in other places. And I bet you if we went and dug in the beach right there, underneath all the sand and gravel, we'll actually hit the bottom of the older village deposits. And the villages are probably, the older parts of the village are probably out in the water now. Behind the village up here in the Uplands area, really from about here, you know, it's just go to where the Uplands begins, all the way over to the far side of Cadborough Bay was a cemetery, um, a, a mixture of uh, canvas fields and burial cairn cemeteries. And so on the picture there, you see there's the person who's being buried. That's a burial cairn. So people brought together stone and soil, and they built these burial features for people between around 
AD 400 and AD 1500, so you know, roughly a thousand years ago. And there are um, 300 of these burial features recorded, recorded now, and most of them, uh, well, I've recorded 100 of them myself. And they're still, they're still there. And I think if we went and looked, we would find hundreds more. Looking at archival records, I think there was probably closer to a thousand. So, right behind here, a thousand burials, and all around these burial cairns are camas fields. And camas was a root food. Do you guys know what camas is? Has anyone ever tried camas? Yeah. Yeah, camas is great. So it's a little starchy root. Um, and what kind of food do you think people were eating here? Fish. What else? Seaweed. Yeah, seaweed. What kind of animals? Clams, urchin, seals, elk, deer, protein. And so when you eat that much protein, you can actually get what's called protein poisoning. So you need a carbohydrate. That's why potatoes are so popular, right? Because you actually need that, that carbohydrate to metabolize all that protein. And camas is that, that carbohydrate. So it's a potato, you need a potato. And it doesn't grow everywhere equally well, but right here, it grows amazingly well. Beacon Hill Park grows amazingly well. And so the Lekwungen people in these village sites, they cultivated it. They uh, weeded it, they transplanted it, they cleared rocks from the fields, and they grew this and then traded it. And it was very, very wealthy. And so it was a, kind of the basis of their economy. And so go to Beacon Hill Park in late May and early June, and you guys know where that is, right? Down. And you'll see Camas. It's a sea of Camas with burial cairns along the top of the hill. And those burial cairns and those Camas often are found together. And that's sort of, we see that all the way along Lekwungen territory. It's because of our unique geography and our unique weather that people can survive and thrive here and not have to move the food always came to us. Most other um, First Nations cultures in North America were somewhat nomadic, had to move around and chase the food. Food came right to you on a regular basis. So that, that means your culture can grow and, and, and thrive in a different way. And that's why you, uh, a lot of the West Coast First Nations villages, there was no need to go beyond the, the riverhead you were at or the valley you lived in. And so you're, you, you lived and created your own language and your own culture in that space. And that's why BC has the largest amount of different First Nations languages and cultural practices because of all of our inlets and mountain valleys and so forth. So when the food's that plentiful, you can just hang out and raise a family and survive. You don't have to go chasing around too much for food eating. You can imagine these winter village sites as well because in the summer they built up such a wealth. I mean, really wealth is what we're talking about. These are very affluent people. Uh, very aristocratic people. They had a very well-developed class system, uh, upper class and middle class, and sort of a slave caste of people. And with uh, the amount of food that they're producing, the houses, you saw the picture there, these were, these were warehouses. I mean, they were just stock full of food. And in the wintertime, families came together, and there may have been five or six families per house. This village may have had a thousand people in it at any given time in the winter uh, of residents. But then also in the wintertime, when you have all that food, so you don't really have to think about food too much, what can you spend the rest of your winter doing? What can you spend six months doing? What's that? Telling stories. Socializing. That's a big part of who we are as people, right? Socializing. Uh, young men and women getting a chance to meet each other. How about ceremonies? And that's, that's what happened. Feasting. Potlatches. Have you guys heard of potlatches? And so that's, that's one of the things that happened here in the winter is that you have potlatches. And potlatches were these massive feasts where you would invite the other aristocratic families from the region to come and feast, socialize. It was a chance for you to talk about your family history. And some of these potlatches were also what we call funerary potlatches. There was also a chance to honor the dead. And so talk about the life and the legacy of the people who had passed. And one of the things that's very important in Coast Salish culture is to honor the ancestors. And so much, so much of what they did and still do and will always do is, is, is perpetuating that honor and respect for the ancestors, building these burial cairns, tending to them, uh, feeding the dead through ritual burning. And that's one of the things that we'll see around these burial cairns and also around the edges of the villages. They'll actually go and burn food for the dead so that the dead are always taken care of. 
And that it's that cycle of respect and connection to their own history and that connection to their landscape that really speaks uh, volumes about just how important this landscape was to them. And it also underscores, I think, the real tragedy of being separated from that landscape today. My name is Salsama, given to me by my grandma, a name that comes from Chatham Island. And I am from Songhees-Hokoman territory, born and raised there. up to Mark as he works for our nation. He does so much to further our nation. Bradley, my hands go up to you and the students here. This is a hard aspect of life that you will experience at times. Don't take it personally. I've done this all my life. People don't want to hear it. They don't they keep saying Canada would not do such a thing. But with beautiful beautiful people like these three, Brad, Nancy and Mark, that it's kept me going. I have always been blessed to have people placed into my life's path that that just give me that option to keep going, to put the negative aside, to say, look, the old ones always said, just brush it off, just brush it off when the negativity sets in. And I shared, <coughs> when I was here the last time doing a talk with the 80 students that I am a survivor of Cooper Island Residential School, and I am a survivor of the Nanaimo Indian Hospital. This legacy has had such a huge impact upon my people, and my hands go up to each one of you, students, because you are our future leaders. You are going to take us to another level because I said I've been doing this for years and now we shut down, now we shut down. So and such love, compassion I cannot express enough words to you. Thank you, Aichka, for what you are doing. I ask the Lord God to bless each one of you protect each one of you. Once we start this, well, we've already started, but once this carries forth. And nurse I used to work with, Kalapoko Poko, little by little, just takes a little ripple and it's gonna broaden. And I put it on a prayer chain I belong to that goes worldwide. That many, many other schools will follow your example and carry this forth. This has been a hidden factor, a hidden legacy for my people that wear a mask of shame that does not belong to them. We've got 
a few topics that we'd like to ask you about, starting with your experience with residential school. We're curious, how did you come to be put into a residential school like that, and how did it feel for you while you were there, and sort of what it was like to be taken there? The one way I like to put it, pick a country you don't know, like Russia, even China. Pick a place you don't know. You don't know the language, the culture, the customs, and all of a sudden you're thrust there. And you're not a lot, like I think everybody here speaks English, right? You would not be allowed to speak English. You have to speak that, that language. You're not allowed to practice your customs, like even a simple prayer. I couldn't say it in my language. It had to be in English, because our way of acknowledging the Creator and praying, the way it, I used to do it on my own language, Lakoman, that I was considered heathen. So it had to be done in English. The very first day I stepped into Cooper Island, <coughs> I saw a priest there that I used to used to go up and down the island. He was well known. I went running up to him, and I hugged him and said, "Each oil, which is, how are you?" I did not know the Sister Superior was behind the door and after he left and we exchanged different things and he left and then she just bolted right out behind the door. She grabbed me by the air and dragged me to her, her room and I got the first dropping of my life which was to last till I left. So from then on you're always on guard. You're always on guard because you don't know what, what to expect. You were considered less than a dog. You were not considered a human being, a savage that knew no better. Hence, our people were labeled alcoholics back in those days. The dress code is so different because you wore uniforms. The food is foreign. I never knew what liver was. I never even knew what a hot dog was because we had fish and seal and all of, to me, what was healthy. So, in that place where you're eating food that's foreign to you, it, it, it was very hard. Not only because you could not speak your language, you're eating food that you don't know. You weren't allowed, even though we knew each other and a lot were relations, you were not allowed to go and hug them and see each oil, which was, again, just a simple, who are you? Which was a sign of respect and compassion. That's how we greeted each and every one. So that was stopped. Then to have your hair cropped almost like almost to a crew cut, because back in those days it was a, a glass, what do, you, what do you call those spray things? The DDT was put in there, and they sprayed you from head to feet to tips of your fingers. A lot of our people suffer nowadays because, you know, DDT is not, not a, I'm so glad it's banned, but it's done a lot of damage to our people, myself included. And a lot have been so sexually, mentally, spiritually, every emotional, such deep impact upon my people my own mother included, my dad included, 
my uncle, they're all gone. Another example. This young boy, that was my cousin from another nation. He forgot that they always already got censored our mail, censored when any came, anybody came to visit. You always had to be in a room where somebody in the next room could listen. Phone calls. Somebody was always in the next room but listening. And this young fellow forgot that. And he had phoned home and said, I'm going to tell what's happened. I'm going to, because he was one of the ones buggered. It was an altar boy. He wanted to be a priest for our people. But because of that statement he made to his parents, I'm going to tell. Two of, the, two of the priests and one brother, he was a brother at the time, who's now a priest. They hung him. They hung him in a gym. Every boy and girl from the smallest to the oldest, they had us pray, prayed past his body. It was hung in a corner. It was hanging there. And they said to each one of us, you take a good look at this young fellow. If any of you choose to share what happened, that is what's going to happen to you. So a lot of our people have repressed by choice because of the trauma that happened, the threats that were made to my people. And again, I say, that's only the tip of the iceberg for residential. But I say that the Indian hospitals were 100 times worse because each doctor was paid $300 sterilize men, women, children. Indian hospitals were established by the federal government of Canada after the Second World War. The Nanaimo Indian Hospital operated for over 20 years. In 1946, the hospital was opened in buildings that were previously a military hospital for the Department of National Defense. The hospital was closed in 1967 and the buildings were demolished in 2004. The Nanaimo Indian Hospital has been located near what is now Vancouver Island University. The Nanaimo Indian Hospital opened with 210 beds. It was 10 years ago, an elder from our nation said, Joni, everybody's talking about residential school. Nobody's talking about the Indian Hospital, which was 100 times worse than a residential. My own uncle, my mom, two of the women from our nation, they had lungs removed. My uncle had his left lung taken out, three of his rib, ribs. That's not the horror of it. When they finished doing whatever they wanted to him, they put him on a gurney, threw him down by the morgue. Involuntary sterilizations and medical experiments are outlawed under international law and are defined as crimes against humanity. Yet Canada and its churches have never been thus charged before any tribunal and not a single person has ever been brought to trial in Canada for these crimes or for the death of a child in these facilities and residential schools where half the children never returned. I give credence, first of all, I, I thank God for having sustained me. There were three women involved. My grandma, my great-grandma, and another grandma was on Discovery Island 
was my grandma that taught me to pray. So from the time I can remember when I started learning to talk, that she always had me kneel down beside her and pray if she was worried about something or just giving praise to God. So that's why I said I give honor and glory to God first because it was him that sustained me both at Cape Island Residential School and the Indian Hospital. Most of our people, I'd say about half, are gone now. There's a lot that have given up, not just in form of alcohol or, or drugs. The memories are so in deep that they can't let go. Their mandate was to wipe out the Indian, out of the Indian. They wanted to make you white. I say by the grace of God, a few of us are still here. Humor, I find, carried a lot of our people despite what happened. I just fell on my knees and I asked God to forgive me for hating the priests, nuns and brothers, for hating the medical staff at the Nymoinian Hospital. And from there, I went into my own healing, which then, five years ago, I was ordained a minister for our nation. And my vision, I was to see my people healed. start with now is we're going to talk about uh, your experience on Chatham Island and what your life was like. I considered my heaven on earth. My great-grandfather, Siamantat, was the leader of Chatham Island. And March, right from Eclulet on down, the different relations gathered to come and help the family gather the sheep together. Sure, it was my great-grandfather that decided which sheep were to be slaughtered and shared with the different nations. Jamaic, my great-grandma, Salsama, my grandma, the name we share, these two women had their own vegetable garden, their own fruit trees. The whole beautiful thing to me about this was everybody worked together. Everything was shared. We were up before that sun came up the sheep, seagulls, were our alarm clocks. We never had clocks. There was no radio, no TV. As I said, it was my heaven on earth. My other grandmother, Grandpa Ned's wife, she was blind from birth. She was on discovery. When I became a young woman, she was me a very strong woman because she did everything normal that we take so much for granted. She did the cooking, the cleaning, the sewing, the knitting, cooking. She did everything normal. As long as she didn't move the things around, you know, she'd go around feeling her way around. I was getting discouraged because I had chose chosen to learn knitting and I kept, you know, dropping stitches and I I couldn't grasp, you know, doing the designs, the 
And this beautiful woman who was blind, she did the two summits, sweaters, complete with the design. And that's what gave me that unction to, to learn. Since you mentioned knitting, did you have any, um, any other sort of activities that you did? There was a lot of seal hunting. Uh, season time I went looking for seagull eggs, uh, seaweed picking, or pick of any fish, cod, all of it. Just about any fish that, that he could wish for. Sea urchins. This <laughs> <laughs> is my favorite. This urchin, you just crack it in half and scoop it up. The jamish. Mark and I were talking about earlier the herring roe. We didn't cook it, we just, you know, plucked it right off a stem. It's crunchy. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Sure. Everyone knows what it is, right? It's eggs, right? Tiny. Like caviar. Tiny. Very high in nutrition. So the trick with the herring is they come back every year in great, great hordes, great, great quantities, and great big um, schools, and they fight together. And um, what the uh, Coast Salish and the Kwangan peoples would do is bend the branches into the water on the gorge, particularly, and the herring would nest their eggs on the on those branches. Then they'd pick the branches up out of the water and be able to pluck the herring roll right off the branches. So a very efficient way to harvest it. Very sustainable crop. Catch a few herring and smoke them was a big thing. So the word Lekwungen, as you may know, translates to mean the land of the smoked herring. So that's how the people get to be known as Lekwungen because of their location around the herring production and gathering. Um. What we talked about a lot today is we talked about a lot of horrible things that have happened, of course, and but you did um, mention this whole idea of like a healing process. So one of our questions that we wanted to ask is, um, and if you ever went back to those schools and saw after you left, like if you went back, if that was a part of your process. I Actually, I've been back there twice. This uh, dear friend of mine that I've known for going to 46 years. <clears throat> uh, I had started sharing my life with her about Cooper and Anaimo. So after I had asked God for forgiveness for the hate and contempt I felt for them, uh, she asked me if I'd be willing to go to Cooper Island and see if we could locate where the school used to be because it was torn down. And I said, sure. So we went and we prayed. And same with Nanaimo. You know, when you feel such a relief from something, when you're under stress or whatever you're experiencing, and it's like uh, wheels, you know, when you guess, cleanse, you know, when you, it's just like, like with me, what I say in my own ways, God, just reach in and take everything, hate, loathing, despising, contempt, Anything negative that's in here, just take it right out. And you feel so much lighter. This is just like the last couple of questions we had. What does it mean to be an elder in your community and what are the responsibilities that you have? I come back to when I was a little girl, 
You know, I don't know if I shared that with you. Like after each meal, you clean up, go into the next meal, fix. While supper time, in the living room part, there was a big uh, wood stove, and I put a blanket on the floor with a pillow, and I was allowed to sit there and listen, because it's much like this, we're teaching the culture, the customs, because we're, we're vocal people, we, we didn't write things down, but I think it's changing. Anyway, it's sitting there and listening. As I said, these three women were so instrumental, because my grandma and my great-grandma could not speak English. Cecilia, Grandpa Ned's wife, could speak a bit, but all were totally reliant on Lagongan language. And I went with them everywhere, because my uncle who went to school, that's how I mastered English, but I knew English. So I was the main translator. When the museum, it started off with Wilson Duff, then Peter McNair, who used to come to learn to say the words, the phrases, the names of plants, and different things. They picked a number of our elders then, the old ones, I see. I was invited to sit, because if they didn't understand what was being asked, then they'd ask me, and then I'd ask them, and then give back. And so I've carried that on. I, I'm teaching my grandson, my granddaughter. She'll be 20 next month, my grandson's. But it's like like now, just even sitting with everybody here that you pass on our knowledge you share, that, which was so open in those days, which helped carry us through. I asked the students after the interview how they felt and what they planned to do with the information they had just learned. It stopped becoming an event that happened. It became real. It became a person rather than people. It became someone in front of you who had gone through that. I think the most important thing for us to do and the most valuable thing that we can do is to start a conversation. Just to start that talk because it has been started and things are growing and things are coming up and things are being talked about but not everyone, not everyone even knows about residential schools. Like it's even, that's even weird to think about the fact that like some people don't know about that dark part of our history. So I think what we need to do and what everyone needs to do is to get educated to learn and to keep thriving for honesty and to keep thriving for that whole process of truth and reconciliation, that process of healing, that that um, understanding that is required when trying to um, get over a tragedy like this. So I think that's what we need to do. We just need to start that conversation, get people educated. And I think that's what we're trying to do here is we're trying to um, take stories and personalize them and bring them, bring them home. Um, there is an essential time after a traumatic event in history where the generations after must decide how, as a nation, we must move past these events and learn from our mistakes and allow those affected to heal. It is one thing to hear about people starting to make changes in the way things work, but it is a completely different experience to be able to make a difference yourself. 
What this project has taught our group amongst all else is that young voices are able to strive for change and are meant to start conversations that many people are too afraid to have. We have learned that to never doubt how much impact our voices can be if they are driven by truth. Nancy Turner gave us some great advice about some action we can all take as individuals in our city. I have a little area about half the, the size of this room that's camas, and I grow my own camas. I don't eat it, but I do dig it and thin it out and put it in pots and give pots of camas away, and I collect the seeds and give them away as much as I can. If everybody did that in their yards and kept some of those things growing, uh, not just in parks and those little enclaves, but if everybody did it all over the city instead of these green lawns, it would be okay to keep a few green lawn patches, but, but largely that's a monocrop that takes a lot of energy to maintain. Um, I think it would be quite a different city and I think it would be a much more diverse and much more interesting city uh, to bring it back to some, in some ways to the way it used to be. And it would be, to me, a recognition, paying respect to the Lekwungen peoples the, and the Saanich peoples who have caretaken this place for so many millennia to to recognize the value of their plants, their species, the things that were here before, and not to just totally allow them to, to go and be replaced by something from somewhere else. Gabor Mate published an article in the Globe and Mail titled, How Do We Heal Trauma Suffered by Native Communities? And it really resonated with all the things that were talked about in this podcast. He says, The source of multi-generational trauma is this country's colonial past and its residue in the present. The march of the history and progress Canada celebrates from which we derive much pride and national identity meant catastrophe for native peoples. The loss of lands, livelihood, freedom of movement, and the mockery and invalidation of their spiritual ways and the near extirpation of their culture, as well as the corruption of their intrafamilial and intracommunal relationships and finally, for nearly a hundred years, the state-sanctioned abduction, rape, physical abuse, and mental torture of their children. The question we must ask ourselves nationally are very simple. How do we as a country move to heal the trauma that drives the misery of many Native communities? What can be done to undo the dynamics our past has dictated? Some may balk at such inquiry, fearing the discomfort that comes with guilt. However, this is not a matter of communal guilt, but of communal responsibility. It is not about the past, it is about the present, and it is about all of us. When some among us suffer, ultimately we all do. To begin, Native history must be taught fully and in unsparing detail in our schools. All Canadians should know, for example, that 50 years ago it was not unheard of for a four-year-old girl to have a pin stuck in her tongue for the crime of speaking her mother language and later endure serial rape by teachers and religious mentors. The resonant values, brilliant art, stories and wisdom culture of First Nations people should be introduced in Canadian schools. Canadians must be helped to see their First Nations peers in their fullness, which includes their humanity, grandeur, unspeakable suffering and strength. We must renounce any political, economic or social policy that reinforces the colonial trauma of disempowerment. 
loss, and dispossession. Not another square centimeter of native land must be disturbed, not a blade of grass cut, not one more drop of water diverted, not a millimeter of pipeline laid without First Nations agreement. Powerfully beneficial traditional healing practices must be researched, taught, and encouraged. We need to celebrate the First Nations cultural renaissance, a tribute to human resilience that is now taking place.